1: Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
0: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
2: You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature.
3: And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls.
1: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
3: And a belated Happy Canada Day to
4: Canadian listeners to this program and a happy July 4th to my American friends, uh, Joel Skousen, among them, who uh, took some time out or will take some time out to speak with us in, in just a few moments. Joel Skousen, the editor of World Affairs Brief, will join us in uh, as i say a few moments but uh, a little later in the show it was uh, 3 let me see 39 years as of uh, yesterday that i would say unquestionably the most charismatic frontman of a rock band jim morrison of the doors uh, passed away officially at uh, 5 a.m. july 3rd, 1971 of a heart attack which is a rather improbable fate for a 27-year-old man, although somewhat less so for a rock star who lived the life uh, that Jim Morrison did. And as his longtime girlfriend Pamela Corson told the story, Morrison decided to take a bath in his Parisian flat one evening. She went to bed, and the next morning discovered his corpse in the tub. And, of course, bizarre rumors uh, began to surface almost immediately, undoubtedly nursed along by... Corson's puzzling attempts to uh, to screw a lid on the news. Initially, she told reporters that uh, Jim was not dead, but very tired and resting in a hospital. Uh, nonetheless, the uh, the world began to wa- uh, uh, to uh, wonder whether Morrison might have died of a of a heroin overdose in the uh, the sleazy underground nightclub, the rock and roll circus. That was one of the other rumors. Another, uh, popular rumor, had it that uh, Jim. OD'd on cocaine. It was a drug that he was known to binge on, and a rumor had it that he was hustled home and deposited in the bathtub in an attempt to revive him. Of course, there were no witnesses, and Corson was claiming that uh, Morrison was still alive days after he died. In fact, there was a Parisian, uh, the, the Parisian doctor had already signed the death certificate listing the deceased as James Morrison Poet. The uh, the coffin was sealed before either the American embassy or Morrison's family had even been notified, and uh, no autopsy was performed uh, because, according to uh, the, Fr- the French law, there was no sign of, of foul play. And uh, it was, a, uh, I think it was six days later, after Morrison's quiet burial at Père Lachaise. The the Doors' manager, Bill Siddons, actually held a press conference and announced the news that the young lion had died of a heart attack brought on by a blood clot or possible lung infection. And then the L.A. Times ran a story headlined Why Morrison Death News Delay? And uh, that led, of course, inevitably to talk of a cover-up after all, uh, only Corson and a couple of French medical examiners and an unknown police officer had actually seen Morrison's body. Not even Siddons, who uh, flew to Paris after Corson denied Morrison's death over the phone, and then she broke down crying. Only Siddons thought to open the casket when he arrived at the, uh, the apartment. We'll, uh, we'll get into all of this with our rock and roll investigator, the self-styled Fox Mulder of rock and roll, R. Gary Patterson. Did Jim Morrison fake his death? Is it possible that he's living out his days as a horse rancher in the northwestern United States? I actually spoke to a gentleman several years ago by the name of Gerald Pitts, who uh, runs a, a rodeo out in, uh, I believe it's Oregon, the state of Oregon, and contends that his neighbor and one of the stars in his rodeo is, in fact, Jim Morrison. Many, many rumors. There was a uh, a Bank of America employee in San Francisco in the mid-'70s who claims that one of his customers... Was a a leather-clad gentleman who looked and sounded like Jim Morrison and went by the name of Jim Morrison. But there were other rumors as well. Well, as I say, we'll get into all of that with uh, R. Gary Patterson, the uh, author of "Take a Walk on the Dark Side: Rock and Roll Curses, Legends, or Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses." Always one of uh, my favorites to have on the program. Just uh, uh, so knowledgeable in this area of rock and roll. But as I say, uh, coming up next. We'll take a look backstage in the global theater when uh, one of the, uh, I would say one of America's leading alternative journalists uh, will join us. He's the editor of uh, a weekly news analysis service, and uh, he'll uh, he'll be here to discuss the the G twenty summit in uh, Toronto that was held last week, and uh, rumors continue to circulate that some, at least some of the uh, the uh, members of the uh, Anarchist uh, protest group the Black Bloc might have been agent provocateurs. Memories of 2007 in Montebello when the police were caught red-handed doing just that. We'll discuss that with him as well as uh, the state of the Tea Party on this uh, July 4th. The Tea Party movement in the United States. The Tea Party's been uh, uh, held countless uh, patriotic parties all over the United States. And they're... their influence is being felt on Capitol Hill, as we'll uh, learn when we speak with Joel Skousen. And uh, we'll also uh, talk to Joel about the, uh, the BP oil spill. And I draw your attention to the online poll on my website, richardserrett.com. It's been up for a couple of weeks. I'll ask him about this former senior election official from Hawaii, who says he would testify in court that President Barack Obama was not born in Hawaii. We'll get Joel Skousen's a take on that. All that plus the Jim
1: Morrison anniversary
4: special when The Conspiracy Show continues
1: after this. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joel
4: Skousen is the editor of World Affairs Brief, a weekly news analysis service dedicated to providing an understanding of the hidden agendas behind the actions of world leaders and other powerful individuals who influence government from behind the scenes uh, Joel, good to have you with us on uh, July Fourth. How are you?
5: Yeah, I'm just fine, Richard. It's good to be with you. Um, you know, on this Fourth of July day, I often think of how much we owe to the Canadians uh, for our help in uh, in many periods of life when the United States has been in danger.
4: It's a particularly uh, uh, a diff- difficult time in the U.S. Whether we're talking about uh, the economy or the uh, the BP oil uh, disaster. It still bothers me when people call it a spill. It's anything but a spill. It's a complete gusher. But uh, how do you gauge the mood of America on this July 4th?
5: Well, there's there's two types, really, of a the mood. There is the normal, blind, patriotic type of fervor, that is, um, which has become more and more worldly, if you would say. I mean, we're talking about rockets, concerts, and uh, a rather body display of patriotism. Um, on the part of those who really don't uh, understand the roots and the m- amount of divine providence that was involved in, in helping us break f- through from a much overwhelming force uh, in England. And, but even the strong conservative constitutionalists, who are the most uh, the, the closest to, I think, the true spirit of celebrating the, um, the great miracle that was the American Revolution, um, tend to get lost. And I was just at one of those patriotic services, tend to get lost in the euphoria of uh, of the times and not realize. Uh, and we hear so often them, and they give their introductory prayers and are thanking God for living in this wonderful free country they live, without realizing or taking cognizance of that we've lost at least half the freedoms that we started out with, and they're closing down rapidly.
4: I'm not sure if uh, th- this this was uh, this this uh, patriotic event that you had... Uh, uh, t- um attended tonight was uh, a tea party event but the Tea Party uh, movement were certainly uh, um, throwing a great deal of these patriotic events across the country today educational uh, events as well and uh, I'm just w- wondering if I could get you to talk a little bit about the some of the recent successes of the uh, the Tea Party in the and uh, some of the primaries and also the influence that is now being felt by uh, by the Tea Party. I'm, I'm I'm thinking specifically of the recent Senate hearings to confirm uh, uh, Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court, where there a lot of the questions about uh, that were, were 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 directed to her were about her interpretation of the Commerce Clause, which always seems to come up whenever uh, we we hear about the, the Tea Party.
5: Well, the Commerce Clause has been one of the linchpins of expansion of federal powers, and so it is very appropriate to uh, grill uh, these nominees about their interpretation. Unfortunately, you know, they have, uh, and conservatives as well as liberals, have acquiesced to the point of view that uh, no candidate or nominate, uh, nominee for the Supreme Court has to answer any specific questions as an interpretation, claiming that, that would be unfair to state in advance of a specific case. Uh, uh, they refuse to state what their ideology is. Uh, frankly, one of the most disturbing things in this nomination uh, hearing was the outright lying that Elena Kagan did. Elena Kagan is uh, her judicial hero is Judge Aaron Barak, um, former Supreme uh, head of the Supreme Court of Israel who is the supreme activist judge, uh, basically saying that the judge holds no allegiance to law, he may change or interpret law as his will, depending on the social needs. And yet, uh, she was claiming to conservatives who were uh, talking about or trying to decipher what his judicial philosophy was, that she was an originalist. An originalist is the legal terminology for someone who believes in interpreting the Constitution according to the intent of the Founding Fathers, who were very, very conservative, uh, who were very much against the expansion of federal power, and who did a lot, including the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, to make sure that there were no possibilities of expansion, that all additional powers went to the states.
4: Excuse me. How do uh, uh, Tea Party uh, faithful or the, the, uh, the conservative constitutionalists Uh, argue against those on the left that see a valid interpretation of the mandate described in Article 1, Section 8, which is to provide for the general welfare, which gives the federal government sort of a a, a huge, vague uh, area in terms of enacting legislation to provide for the general welfare.
5: Well, one has to go back to the writings of the Founders. First of all, it's in the preamble. It's technically not part of the legal documentation of the, uh, the Constitution. They have included it by interpretation but it never was intended to be part of the actual restrictive nature of the Constitution, simply an introductory statement about the general purposes and when you look at all of the writers of the founders in those days the Tea Party position, the constitutional conservative position is correct that general welfare uh, referred to the defense of fundamental rights of all people had nothing to do with welfare providing benefits or anything in terms of enhancing the physical life, for, except by defending the fundamental rights of all. That's what general welfare of all meant. and It was very clear in common laws, well, in Blackstone's interpretation, what the general welfare clause meant.
4: Joel Skousen with us here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. He's the author of, or the editor, rather, of World Affairs Brief. Joel, how do people subscribe to World Affairs Brief?
5: Well, they can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. I recommend that they uh, get a free sample issue first by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. And uh, it tells them how to do that on the front page of the website. Uh, There's a modest subscription fee. Uh, I think it's only $24 U.S. for the rest of the year. Uh, But... uh, I do try to put back into the news the things that are not being discussed. I think most of the news is manipulated by what they purposely omit, careful and crucial information, and omit, and that's what I try to put back. Uh, Going back to, you know, uh, Supreme Court nominee Kagan, um, most of the time uh, left liberal judges attempt to persuade them that they're not left liberal uh, by evasion. Uh, Elena Kagan engaged in outright lying of her position. That's uh, what was so evil about this, and unfortunately none of the senators were uh, brazen enough to call her on that.
4: Uh, Joel, last week uh, Toronto played host to the uh, $1.3 billion uh, G20 summit, and uh, I know that you uh, you uh, wrote about that in uh, World Affairs Brief. What did you make of uh, I just, I, it's ironic, and I think you pointed this out as well, that uh, the, sort of one of the themes of the G20 was uh, for uh, governments to show restraint and cut deficits and so forth, and yet here's the government uh, of Canada uh, frittering, frittering away $1.3 billion on something that could have been achieved via a video conference.
5: Absolutely true. They spent $1.2 billion on security, and a lot of that involved agent provocateurs. This is what happened in the... Uh, uh, 2007 um, uh... conference, policemen uh, dressed up as civilians, always the black block, that is, with the black uh, clothing and the masks. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the links that I put in this uh, issue of the World Affairs Brief to the uh, 2007 unmasking of these police officers as the police attempted or played like they were arresting them to get them out of the hands of uh, the people who were going to pull down their mask and get their faces on video is just dramatic. And the proof came in the boots. The soles of the boots uh, matched identically the types of boots that the very police that arrested them were wearing. And uh, it was dramatic, but we had the same type of thing happen in, in this one. The people who were breaking windows were police agent provocateurs. And,
4: and uh, uh, where is the the evidence? Uh, I mean, I've seen the photos of some of the black uh, bloc uh, riders wearing what looked like military-issue-type boots, but... Uh, I've, I've seen nothing really in terms of evidence quite as compelling as the video of, from Montebello, when the 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 agent provocateurs, of course, hid behind the police lines, and uh, uh, which is which was rather odd. But what sort of uh, a tangible evidence are you hearing or seeing that would suggest that some of the black bloc were in fact uh, undercover uh, police?
5: Well, first of all, the Montebello evidence is what i consider proof uh, it's not absolute proof because the identities no one admitted to that and they were let you know go there was no charges brought against these people their records were not kept uh... so it ends up being mostly circumstantial but it was very very dramatic because there were videotapes of it running uh, the entire time in fact when they take took down the two agent provocateurs uh... you could see uh, the policeman uh, putting their heads down beside their ear and whispering things to them, uh, meaning giving them instructions, or I play like you're resisting, etc. I mean, you never see that when you're dealing with violent people and you're taking them down. They don't put their head down by them and whisper something in their ear. You know, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're putting their hands and they're treating them roughly. Uh, that didn't happen. In the latest one, it is even more circumstantial, but it's still there. For example, the, uh, the, the link that I quoted from took apart several of the photos, one where there was only one really wearing one of the, what looked like the combat issue boots um, with these so-called, you know, uh, anarchists, uh, they just don't wear that type of boot. Uh, most of them were wearing uh, a typical commercial um, black tennis shoe uh, type thing, but there were that had special protective armbands, uh, hip uh, protectors underneath their clothing. You know, this is not equipment that anarchists uh, have. Uh, frankly, I think whether you go back to the Seattle riots in America, there were also agent provocateurs uh, where there was a tremendous amount of evidence, evidence that they were worked by the police. Uh, Interesting enough, these people who were arrested, uh, uh, who have the black mask and, and the black kind of uniform, are ne- their names are never taken. They're never brought to trial. They're never laid any charges on. And, of course, they wouldn't dare do that because, uh, you know, their names could be traced to police roles
4: then. I, I did find it odd that the uh, the police cars that were set ablaze were just sort of left there abandoned. There were very few That's police right. uh, in sight. And I don't know, I, I'm not an we're explosive.
5: There. Well, we're there, Richard. We're standing and observing.
4: Right. And they let those police cars burn for hours. And I, I don't, I'm not an explosives expert, but I don't think it's that easy to just to set a car ablaze like that. Uh, I have to ask you... That's,
5: that's, that's correct. You've got to have uh, some type of flammable bomb that you throw into the car to get it to, uh, ablaze like that.
4: Uh, Joel, the um, the poll question on my website at Richard richardserrett.com uh, for the last couple of weeks has to do with this former senior election official from Hawaii who says he testified testify in court that President Barack Obama was not born in Hawaii. What did you think of that development?
5: Well, I think that was a very uh, accurate uh, thing. It was a... Uh, fortunately, for the first time, this guy knew what he was talking about in terms of the difference between a certification of live birth and a birth certificate. And everybody else, especially uh, CNN and others, who made a big deal of crucifying this uh, uh, American military officer, who refused to serve, uh, military doctor refusing to serve because challenging Barack Obama's eligibility run, didn't know the difference between a certificate of live birth and a birth certificate. And, boy, I'll tell you... uh, Cooper Anderson just made mincemeat out of him because he didn't know the difference. Uh, Fortunately, this guy knew. He seemed to have the evidence. He was there at the time. He had talked to his officials. They admitted that you don't want to go there, that there's no actual birth certificate, only a certificate of life birth, which he explained anybody can falsify. I, myself, had a daughter born in Hawaii uh, at home. We went and certified that we were the parents, no proof asked, no questions asked. That's exactly what Barack Obama's mother did.
4: and And uh, lest someone think that he has a political axe to grind, this former election official says, as far as he he doesn't understand what the big deal is because as far as he's concerned, it makes no difference in, in, in order or uh, it makes no difference to whether Barack Obama is eligible to be president. He believes he is eligible to be president regardless of this whole uh, uh, registration of live birth.
5: Right, so he doesn't have an ax to grind, but it exactly. exactly does make a difference. He does not qualify, and it is a technicality, uh, but nevertheless, it is one that he took great pains, or the powers of the be that decided to run him have taken great pains to hide and falsify for many years, even to the extent of uh, uh, you know uh, hiding and making sure that none of the universities that he attended um, have opened any of their records, his scholarships, uh, Um, even the the blockbuster information about him enrolling in Columbia. In fact, there is no evidence that he ever was at Columbia. Nobody knew him there. And how many people do you know, Richard, who went to the university with a former president, or Bill Clinton, who didn't have bragging rights that I went to school with Bill Clinton? Virtually no one has come forth saying they knew him at Columbia.
4: Well, of course. He was uh, he was so busy studying in his uh, dorm that he just didn't get around and mix, I guess. <laughs> uh, Joel Skousen, uh, uh, once again, how do we subscribe to World Affairs Brief?
5: Well, you go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and click on the subscribe button, and people can uh, request a free sample copy of the World Affairs Brief by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com.
4: And uh, what's coming up in the next issue?
5: Well um I haven't got close enough to that it's been the holidays and so I'm afraid I can't really answer that but there're always is something this uh, this thing is moving very very fast we're losing freedoms very very rapidly and that's going to be my message about uh, the celebration of the 4th is uh, kind of cataloging catalog, cataloging to my subscribers just where we stand in terms of what kind of liberty we had before and what kind of liberty we've got now. And we're very much diminished, and sad to say, Canada's in the same boat.
4: Absolutely. What do you think it would it would take for a Tea Party movement up here?
5: Well, unfortunately, you don't have the, the, the same basis, you know, the... The conservative constitutional movement came here, be, uh, started here, because of the dramatic difference the Constitution makes in having a written Constitution made. Our Constitution has been softened over the years by precedent. So when you have a Canadian system where the Constitution is more or less by legal precedent, legislative you know, changes over time, you don't have a definitive document that everybody can succinctly read. I mean, the Constitution was printed on two you know, pa- handwritten pages, large page to be sure, but it's very accessible and it has uh, the most important restrictions that, that any government has been placed on and those have been destroyed. But in the process we have literally millions who are aware of that problem. They're nowhere near enough to to make a real difference. Though so I am enthused that the Tea Party movement is big enough that the powers that be are trying their best to infiltrate it and divert it through so-called moderation as they get people like Sarah Palin to endorse it, John McCain and, uh, Uh, other people um, and other liberal people running under the conservative banner. That's the problem we run with is everybody starts to jump on a bandwagon and and they get elected as Tea Party candidates and then they betray it, just like uh, Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown has become a great liberal now, a bad liberal in the Congress rather than a conservative he got elected on.
4: Just one final question, uh, uh, Joel, and that is
5: uh,
4: how do you – how do you convince somebody that uh, the federal government has no business regulating even the, in, in the area of the environment in light of this whole BP oil disaster?
5: Well, in fact, it does have power to regulate an environment because anything that threatens one of the fundamental rights of its citizens is a legitimate power of government uh, to protect. But uh, We're talking about prosecuting people and corporations for damaging other people through the environment. Uh, What they've done through the law in BP is made limitations on liability of $75 million, which is ridiculous in this case. And we've also found, in fact, that, uh, and this is a whole other story we'll have to take for another interview, but the evidence is very, very strong that there's sabotage involved that created this, uh, this great oil disaster which is meant literally to shut down U.S. oil production offshore. And, uh, but this was no accident, in
4: fact. Well, we will pick up on that the next time. Joel, uh, thank you, and again, happy July 4th.
5: Thank you very much, Richard. Always good to be with you.
4: You too, my friend. Joel is an editor of World Affairs Brief, the website, worldaffairsbrief.com. All right. Uh, July 3rd, yesterday, of course, was the anniversary, the passing of legendary frontman of the uh, the group, The Doors. Jim Morrison passed away. July 3rd, 1971, in Paris, or did he? Rock and roll investigator R. Gary
1: Patterson. We'll delve into that question with him on the other side. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio,
0: AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio the new AM 740
6: you know today destroys a night night divides a day try to
1: If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740.
4: I'm, uh, I'm confident that at a certain stage in his career, Jim Morrison's phone was tapped. In fact, reports are that he lived in such a an- constant anxiety about uh, the FBI trailing him, keeping tabs on him. Uh, that he, as a result of this anxiety, suffered uh, from ulcers by the time he was in his mid-twenties. And uh, Ray Manzarek once said in a, uh, I believe it was a BBC interview about uh, 1983, that when the Doors took the stage, there was Vice Squad on the left, Narks on the right, and they basically had the warrants filled out with the Doors, uh, the individual members of the band's names, already written on the warrant. They were just ready. They just had to, to fill in the crime. They were just constantly hounded, uh, which have, has, has led some to, to, uh, to conclude uh, that the question shouldn't be, did Jim Morrison fake his death? The question should be, who killed Jim Morrison? We'll, uh, we'll discuss the rumors, the legends, the myths surrounding the Lizard King, the Young Lion, the most charismatic front man in rock and roll history, Jim Morrison, who ostensibly passed away at about five a m on July third nineteen seventy one in a bathtub in his flat in paris france and uh, we're going to embark on the next ninety minutes and uh, your participation is as always valued and encouraged at four one six three six zero zero seven forty four one six three six zero And out of town, toll free from Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, 866-744-740, 866-744-740. All right, to help us along in this discussion is one of my favorites, all-time favorite guests on the program. He's a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. As a published author with Simon & Schuster, his uh, works portray many fascinating events that helped shape musical history from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. In 1996, R. Gary Patterson released his first book entitled The Walrus Was Paul. Immediately, the book became highly sought after. Beetlefest catalog proclaimed The Walrus Was Paul as one of its best-selling titles of the year. And due to the instant success of the book, Patterson found himself as a highly sought-after radio personality. He appeared on all the syndicated Beatle radio shows, including Westwood One's The Beatle Years, ABC Radio's Beatle Archives, The Breakfast with the Beatles program from uh, New York to L.A., and Joe Johnson's Beatle Brunch. Shortly thereafter, Gary released his second book, Hellhounds on Their Trail. In this work, Patterson continued with his popular theme of rock and roll's enduring myths and legends. Hellhounds on their trail begins with Robert Johnson's waiting at the crossroads just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, to make his deal with Old Scratch. Other chapters focus on hidden messages in rock, Jimmy Page, and the Zeppelin's curse, strange fatal coincidences in the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner's bands, and a discussion of an exclusive group of musicians who who were members of the, the club, whose only membership requirement was untimely death, at the tender age of 27, which, of course, would include Jim Morrison. Gary's third book was released by Simon & Schuster's Fireside Books on July 13, 2004. It's called Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And, of course, Gary's continuing to collect more tales for his next volume of great rock and roll myths and legends. And uh, this is where, actually, uh, you can... um, assist if you want to call in if you've got uh, some rock and roll legends you'd like to share with gary if you want to talk about jim morrison or you'd like to ask him about a particular rock and roll myth legend or curse we'll make the phone lines available to you a little bit later but right now let's welcome aboard once again our gary patterson gary how are you i'm
6: doing great richard how are you
4: very well happy july 4th my friend how did you celebrate today (laughs)
6: <laughs> Actually, I was lazy today, but I uh, had a family outing, which is always good, and now I'm hearing fireworks go off probably the last two hours, so maybe they'll be a little quieter now, but had a great time, great day.
4: Terrific, terrific. Well, thank you for joining us on a July 4th. Well, uh, yesterday, the uh, the anniversary uh, of uh, Jim Morrison's death, and I mentioned the club. Uh, he was 27. Uh, he was, uh, let's see, Almost two years to the day, I think, uh, Brian Jones uh, uh, passed away. Two years earlier, rather. He was 27. We had Janis Joplin in, uh, I think, October of 1970. She was 27. Jimi Hendrix, uh, that same year, 27. Uh, I mean, a mere coincidence, or uh, what, what do you think was that work there with all these uh, great rock, uh, rock and roll musicians passing away at 27?
6: Well, you know, you think about natural law and how the planets move around the universe. You know, maybe there's something mathematical to it. But but when I did the book and I came up with the club or Club 27 and, and uh, started getting into this, is actually when I was researching Brian Jones and Morrison, and I was saying, oh my gosh, he died at 27, she died at 27, uh, Robert Johnson died at 27, Kurt Cobain dies at 27, and the next thing I knew, I had a... I had a caller who called me who was working on on his Ph.D., and he was doing some statistical problem, and he said, I just want you to know I put in all the ages of all rock stars, starting with the death of uh, Richie Valens, who was only 17, and made my way up into those who managed to pass away in, in the prime of life or a little later, you know, got to make it to old age. And he said, I want you to know that 42 rock stars died at the age of 27, and it's the number one fatal age for rock stars. So now that sort of amazed me because now we got 42 names, and uh, you know whether it has to do with numerology or whatever. I would say that if I was a rock star, I'd stay out of small planes and uh, be careful that year. You know, I I was reading an interview in BMI with John Mayer, and they asked him. They said, "What's your greatest, you know, significant achievement?" And he said, "Well." I made it past twenty-seven. So <laughs> you I'm, go. I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> he read
4: the book. He
6: read the book. Yeah, he read the book. That's always good. So he made it past twenty-seven. I'm glad to. You know, that's great. Take us back and, to uh,
4: uh, to Paris, uh, nineteen seventy-one, July third. Mm-hmm. Pamela Corson, his girlfriend, longtime girlfriend, right. uh, who who he left everything to. Um, why did she take? Was it six days before she actually uh, came out with the you know and an announced? That that Jim Morrison was dead and not just you know resting in a hospital someplace. Why did she take so long?
6: I think it was five days.
4: Five days. Okay. You
6: know, it's close to that. And one other thing, it was exactly two years to the day that Brian Jones died. It was two years. Yeah, July Mm -hmm. third. Which is and they both died in water. You know, and uh, which is kind of interesting. And Brian Jones, uh, Jim Morrison loved brian jones in the rolling Stones, so you know he felt very close to him was very troubled when jones died so that's kind of odd uh, i tell you you know i love legends richard because there's always something new coming out or something you know you have to anticipate and i don't know if we're ever going to find out exactly what happened that night in paris especially with pamela corson because uh, there's a, a lot of the story now that may be disputed um, I know why she waited five days. I don't think she wanted Jim Morrison's family in Paris, and I don't think she wanted the doors in Paris. And I think, and if you'll think about this for a while, when Morrison died, what would be the world thing to happen to Pamela Corson? If he had died of a drug overdose, there would have to be an autopsy. If she couldn't sell the idea that he had died from pneumonia and maybe some form of heart attack. If she couldn't sell that, then it'd be an investigation. And if you find drugs in his body, especially if it was heroin, there had to be someone he got the heroin from, and then someone would be put on trial. So I think for Pamela Corson, she had to really do a good job of selling the French corner on the idea that Jim Morrison had died from complications of pneumonia and a heart attack and a warm bath. Because there's even speculation at the time of his death at 5 a.m. may have actually been 7 a.m. Because when the authorities got there, the, the bath was still lukewarm. And, you know, so that's, that's sort of odd. And she turned his passport in. Uh, the family wasn't notified. And when the doors finally found out, they sent Bill Siddons, who was the manager, over to Paris. And when he left, Ray Manzarek looked at him and he said, Bill, I don't want to be ghoulish, but make sure. And he said, what do you mean? He said, listen, just make sure. And now, did, whatever that meant. you know.
4: <laughs> right, right. Sure. And did Bill actually open the, the, the casket? There's some, no, no. he here's, didn't. Here's,
6: the, here's the point that's interesting. How many people saw Jim Morrison's body? Okay? Now, in a lot of books, they'll say, well, you know, Pamela Corson saw the body, uh, Alan René saw the body, who was Morrison's friend in Paris, who helped uh, Pamela Corson put all this together. But when Bill Simmons got to Paris, there was a simple wood veneer coffin, and the lid had been screwed into place. So he, he never at any time said, uh, would you take the screws out and let me see Jim's body. He never said that. And when they buried him at Père Lachaise on, I think it was July 8th, the uh, report goes that there were maybe four, no more than eight people present at his funeral when they buried him. So, you know, Marianne Faithful claims to have seen the body. In her autobiography, she talks about the guy she was with may have been the one who actually gave him the heroin. And then we have another conjecture with it because uh, Morrison was terrified of heroin, especially after Janis Joplin died. Uh, Morrison's main drug of interest was cocaine. So the theory goes that he comes home late, he sees his powdery substance, he thinks it's cocaine, it's Pamela's. Pamela doesn't say anything to him because she doesn't want to be lectured. She's terrified. He takes it. He snorts it. He gets into the bathtub, and he dies from complications with that because they found blood in the water. His nose had been bleeding. And it was, it was pretty easy for Pam to sort of fool the coroner because Morrison had this terrible cough when he was in Paris, and he had gone for medical treatment. So there was a record that she had about this terrible, terrible cough that could have been pneumonia, and she was able to convince the doctor that it was natural causes and that he had died from complications of pneumonia and a heart attack. And, of course, that freed her because there was no autopsy, there was no inquest. Uh, She was able to leave Paris and come back to Los Angeles. And when she met with Danny Sugarman, who was later the Doors manager, who was one of the writers of No One Here Gets Out Alive, she said a puzzling thing to him. And if you remember reading the original issue of... uh, of the book, No One Here Gets out Alive. Sugarman sort of leaves it open-ended if if Morrison faked his death because when he asked Pamela Corson if Jim could still be alive, she said, well, if Jim were alive, he would call me. Now, that's sort of strange.
4: Mm. Yeah, it's it's rather vague and evasive, isn't it?
6: It is. And when Marianne Faithful said that she saw the body, she she said she saw Jim Morrison's body, and his chest had this deep bruise on it. That's what, she, that's what she remembers. But uh, she said it was so terrifying to look at him that she couldn't really look the face, and that Pamela didn't either. So that brings up another conjecture. I mean, I don't know if we had Jim Morrison's brother-in-law on the show one time. Did we have Alan Graham on?
4: No, we did not. Do you remember? No.
6: Well, you know, Alan was his brother-in-law at the time, and he's pretty outspoken because the Morrison family doesn't talk very much about anything. And, you know, Alan was with the family when... Uh, Jim had died, and he knew what was going on behind the family scenes, trying to get to France. And he also said that he saw some photographs of a friend of Jim's, whose name was Dietmer, a German, who had an uncanny resemblance to Jim Morrison. He said, "Look, I'm going to tell you, I saw the picture of these two guys together, and he said I couldn't tell them apart. And he said, you know, he said now, you know, just think about this. He said, you know, Jim was tired of the music." Uh he had an IQ of 149 or 150, very bright guy. And what if it was uh, his friend who died? And what if they put him in the grave? And Morrison was able to escape this life. So you know, and you know, of course, you know, he sort of I don't I don't think he goes with that theory, but I mean, he's willing to look at both sides of it. And he's an interesting fella, I will say. So we may have to get Alan on the show one night. And, and talk to him because, you know, he's the one who was there. Would love and, to. And uh, when I talked to him, it was an interesting story.
4: All right, Gary, we'll uh, pick it up on the other side and continue to delve into the uh, the legend of Jim Morrison, the mystery, the curse, or the, uh, well, I don't know if there was a curse over the doors, but um, we can certainly talk about uh, some of the rumors that uh, he faked his death and some of the rumors that he was targeted for assassination. Our Gary Patterson, author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. My name is Richard Serrett.
1: Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
3: People are strange when you're a stranger Faces look ugly when you're alone Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down,
1: when you're straight. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740.
4: Our Gary Patterson is with us. We're discussing the anniversary of Jim Morrison's death 39 years ago, yesterday. The uh, the program uh, director here at the uh, the radio station was quite excited. Uh, we were doing this show tonight. He just returned from Paris and, of course, visited uh, Jim's uh, gravesite in Père Lachaise. And uh, what do you make of the... Uh, you know the suggestion that the the plot where Jim is buried is far too short. I don't know how how tall Jim Morrison was. I I believe he was what five eleven, six foot.
6: Very close to that. And the first time I went to Pere which was in nineteen ninety, uh, you still had the graffiti. And I mean, it was it was a great thing to walk into this beautiful old you know Gothic French cemetery, national cemetery, which. It's extremely hard for foreigners to be buried within it. But I remember walking in, and I would see the graffiti. And, uh, you know, I had no idea how to get to Morrison's Grave. The place was huge. And there was a, a sign which led you to the famous graves, but someone had scratched out Morrison's. And uh, I don't think the French really cared that much that he was one of their main tourist attractions. But I remember walking through, and I could see the word Jim, and there would be an arrow. And this would be written on a curbstone. And then I would follow the era. And then Jim, with the I, became an arrow pointing straight ahead. So I was following it. I thought, you know, this is fun. You know, this is like a great search of mystery. And when I got closer, on the tombstones was written uh, Doors lyrics, you know, like, let's wait with Jim on the, on the blue bus. And then finally, there was when you got to his grave, it said Morrison's Hotel. And when I got there, there was probably 50 people around the grave. And you'll have to ask your producer how many people were there that day. But every time I've been there, there's been a group of people. And they're sitting there. They're taking pictures. uh, And then, you know, the first time, people were writing graffiti everywhere. Now, the Morrison family has agreed to remove all the graffiti from the tombstones. They have a security system there with lots. And the police are on duty to protect that one grave. And they have a little barricade set up around it it's the only grave in Paris Lachaise that's guarded by police and you know when you see the sign that says Jim you never saw a sign that said Fred going to Frederick Chopin you know
3: or Oscar Wilde
6: leading to Morrison and i was i was just amazed i mean these are fans all over the world uh the graffiti's written in languages all over the world i remember the first time i saw that someone had taken the jack of hearts the playing card and stuck it halfway in his grave and if you remember the song, Hyacinth House, there's a lyric where Morrison sings, Why did you take the jack of hearts away? It was the only card in the deck I had left to play. Mm. So someone had returned it. So, I mean, these people, you know, who, who did this, they were devout fans. And uh, the French, of course, when Morrison died and he was buried in 71, one of the odd things was that Pamela Corson leased the grave. You know, she didn't buy it. So in 20 years, 2001, the lease ran out. And the French were so disturbed, because when the wall came down, a group of Eastern Europeans for the first time made their way to Paris to pay homage to Jim Morrison. They partied outside his, outside his grave. There were all kinds of things going on around his grave. When the police ran him out, they, one of the people set a car on fire, smashed it into the wall, and the French had decided that Jim Morrison would start his L.A. tour in 2001. <laughs> they were going to send him back. And uh, so then everybody said, well, this will be the chance because when they dig that grave up and they exhume Jim Morrison, we're going to open that wood veneer coffin and we're going to see if he was in there. So the Morrison family agreed that they would keep the body there, that they would take care of the graffiti, put a security system. And now Jim has become a permanent resident of a Steeler town. You know, he's, he's a permanent resident of uh, Père Lachaise and one of the top five tourist attractions in Paris.
4: Top five in Paris, my word. What of the, uh, the, um, the idea that his, his plot is far too short?
6: Oh, it, it is. I mean, I'm six, two and a half, almost six, three. And I was standing there looking at it, and there was no way that I could lie down and have my feet touch one end. My head would be over. I mean, if he was 5'11", it's still too short. The only thing I know is if they buried him and then put this concrete uh, border around him after they buried him, which would seem extremely odd and unrealistic, especially if the grave was only leased. Now, John Dinsmore said the grave was too short. And on one other occasion, Ray Ray Manzarek made an announcement, stood in front of Perilous and said, Jim Morrison cannot be buried here. This grave is too short. So, you know, that's another thing. That's why you know, it would all have been solved in two thousand one, Richard, but uh you know, when I asked Alan about it, he said, Well what if they dug up that grave and there was nothing there? Mm you know. And I think he played the game. But you know, in saying that, but but still the idea was, you know, that everybody was looking forward to two thousand one. I did a series with V H one. It was called bh uh, VH one Confidential and we did a thing on on uh Jim Morrison and Manzarek was on and I remember him saying that on July 2001 door fans from around the world will be standing at Père Lachaise and I'll be standing with them and we're going to be saying open the box open <laughs> the box
4: well I mean Jim Morrison's uh, father was a, an admiral in the navy was he yes. not what, I mean did they have lingering lingering doubts uh, and would they have uh, at did did they ever uh, attempt to have the body exhumed
6: no a matter of fact uh, you know Morrison had told Elector Records that his family was dead. Hmm. And the Admiral was very upset with his oldest son because he had, uh, well, you know, he was dodging the draft. Uh, you know, I, I think he, he got out of the draft by claiming he was homosexual, which was used at that time. And I think he had actually sent agents to have him arrested. And when the doors came out and Jim Morrison became the iconic frontman of the entire 60s in the counterculture. The Admiral offers to resign his position. And I believe he was the youngest appointed Admiral in the history of the Navy. And he was ready to fall on his sword. And they kept him. They didn't accept his resignation because there was some turmoil there. I don't think, I remember reading that the Admiral had told Jim that he had heard his music and that it was terrible and that it would never go anywhere. So he never really understood exactly. What a well! What a brilliant writer and personality that his son was. But if you remember when he was buried, there was no tombstone for a number of years, and someone, uh, some artist from Eastern Europe, had actually sculpted the bust and put it over his grave. And someone stole the headstone, and uh, a new a new headstone was placed there. And the admiral had written a Greek phrase, and when you translate the phrase, the closest I came to it was "True to his spirit." Which was mm. probably a peace offering right. that he gave his son, but it's true to his spirit. So, the Morrison family at no time wanted to exhume the body. The other thing you got to remember: what a tremendous honor it would be for Jim Morrison to be buried at Pere Lachaise. I mean, look who's there. He's got some great, you know, company. Oscar Wilde's buried there. Balzac's buried there. Moliere. I mean, it's a a who's who cemetery of great personalities. So, you know. I think that... And Morrison had, three days before he died, he'd actually went through perilous shifts, telling people this is where he wanted to be buried. And uh, the strange story was that the first plot was close to uh, Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde had a very similar story. And, you know, we're going to get into all the rumors and conspiracy theories, but you remember what happened in Miami yes. when uh, Jim was found uh, guilty of indecent exposure? Yes. And, uh, you know, his lar- his attorney was actually had filed an appeal, and Morrison had been sentenced to like six months of hard labor. His attorney told a number of people that if Jim were ever put in prison, that he would be murdered there. Hmm. So, let's take a look at this. Why France? Why was Jim Morrison sent to France in March? Manzarek said he was going to rediscover himself, he was you know, going to be, write his poetry, which is true. But France has another advantage.
4: No and extradition Roman
6: Polanski mm-hmm. yeah, there was no extradition treaty to the United States for any sex crime. That's why Polanski went to France right. That's why Oscar Wilde went to France, so they you know he could stay there. he would not have to be sent to a prison, so it was probably the safest place to put him and When he first got to Paris, he actually spent the night in an old hotel and he found out he was actually in the room that Oscar Wilde had been in in that hotel. And I, I think it was the same room that Oscar Wilde died in.
4: Did of he complain Oscar about
6: Wilde's last word? Yeah, was, that wallpaper has to go, <laughs> or I do.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, did Jim complain about the wallpaper too?
6: <laughs> he probably didn't. After he heard what Wilde's last words were, so he sort of had that, you know, that that same bent with Oscar Wilde and himself. But you know, that was the idea, and that's why you know Paris was a safe place, and uh, he couldn't be extradited. And he could write his poetry. He actually, The Doors tried to get him to come back after uh, the L.A. Woman album came out uh, because there was so much interest in their careers again. And But Morrison wasn't ready to go. He said, if you think that album was great, wait till you see my new stuff. That's what he told Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger. And, of course, you know, later American Highway, and some of his poetry came out that The Doors set to music. But, you know, that's one of the real stories on why Paris was chosen.
4: Interesting. Yeah, it makes perfect sense now. Now, uh, reports were that that he was very very uh, depressed in in uh, Paris, and he often said, you know, when, it, when when people asked him about his drug taking, he loved you know LSD and 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 would uh-huh. and drink would, dr- would drink very heavily at all times of the day. Uh, he would say it's, his drinking was not suicide; it was slow capitulation. Uh-huh. Do you think? Is it possible? Uh, I mean, uh, there was uh, one report that Pamela Corson confided in a friend that 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 night, she actually. Uh, Um, helped Jim get into the bathtub, that he had been taking heroin for 48 hours, had been... uh, It sounds like suicide to me, almost.
6: Well, you know, one of the famous writers that uh, when you think of Jim Morrison, you think of Arthur Rambeau. And Rambeau, whose lover is also buried in perilous, I think that impressed Morrison. Rambeau always talked about what he considered to be the predestined tragedy of the artist. And it was like the over-acuteness of the senses in which the delineation of the senses where it's more like William Blake where he says, the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. So the idea of Morrison who drank, but continuously drank more and more and more, and uh, more substance abuse and when he would he would go on death rides in his car where he would go 120 miles an hour, not hit his brakes, spin around in circles, that he would go on tall buildings in uh, L.A. and walk the ledge, just getting close enough to it so he could look death in the eye. And, you know, you think about that idea that he was predestined to die that death because of, of how he lived his life. I mean, Morrison never bought a home. Uh, he never rented an apartment. He always lived with his girlfriends or Pamela Corson. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's rather odd. He also slept on the, the door's office, or he slept in the office on a, on a leather couch, and he stayed in probably the worst hotels you could imagine, like living in Squalor. And all of this had to go with his, his teachings of this road to excess. And, you know, death was one thing that sort of fascinated mean, if you remember, you know, Dawn's Highway. You know, I know we're going to talk about that. And uh, when he talks about uh, Indians scattered on Dawn's Highway. Yes bleeding ghost, crowd the young child's fragile fragile eggshell mind. I think he was five years old. He was with his mother and father, grandfather, grandmother, and they were driving to New Mexico, and uh, there was a head-on collision in front, and he saw these dying American Indians across the road. And his father and grandfather got out of the car to go see if they could help. And Jim tried to get out of the car, and his mother pulled him back in and wouldn't let him. And he was so terrified by looking at it and seeing the suffering and hearing the screaming. And it's at that time that he said that he felt one Native American spirit spirit, maybe several, jump into his brain. But when they left he was so terrified that his father eventually told him, he said, Son, that didn't happen. You just dreamed it hmm. because it was such a terrifying thing for him. And, you know, that that probably created a poet that night, you know, that sort of gave him that, that concept of death. But you know, that was another thing with Morrison. I mean that' sort of set him up for this. And uh, if it was Rambo's uh, predestined tragedy, whatever, you know, it seems like he couldn't escape his fate, and he knew it. I remember he did an interview well, he was talking with his interview, but it was Bill Siddons' wife. They were celebrating his 25th birthday, and uh, they were drinking, and uh, he turns to her, and Jim says, "You think uh, we can get together and do my 30th birthday?" And she said, he just looked at me said, we both knew he'd never lived to be 30.
4: Mm. All right, uh, Gary, hold on. We'll uh, come back. We'll get to some calls. If you have a question, comment about uh, Jim Morrison you'd like to share, right line's available the available to you, 416-360-0740,
0: 866-744-740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
2: We deal in illusions, man. None of
5: it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creed.
3: Don't turn off your television sets Turn them off now Turn them off right now Turn them off and leave them off Turn them off right in the middle of taking second time Speaking to you now Turn them off
4: Brainwashed in our childhood Brainwashed by the school Brainwashed by our teachers And brainwashed by all the rules Brainwashed by our
2: leaders By our kings and queens Brainwashed in the open And
3: brainwashed behind the scenes Live
1: from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Our Gary Patterson is here, author of
4: Take a Walk on the Dark Side Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. We're talking about, of course, the anniversary of Jim Morrison's death. And uh, let's work in a phone call. David is in Niagara Falls. Good morning, David. Hello. Hi How there. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi there, go ahead.
6: Uh, yeah, it's, I, I just happened to catch your show tonight. It's weird because uh, I have a, a CD, like an interview with Morrison. Uh, it's a rare 1970 interview with Morrison, and I, I've listened to it about five or six times, maybe more, maybe seven or eight, but just I just happened to bring it to work today, and I listened to it. And then I caught the show. I just thought I'd phone in and tell you guys that, but it's a really neat interview. Like, I mean, you wouldn't believe how like, uh, smart Jim sounds. The words he uses is just really, you know, intellectual and great interview.
4: Terrific. Are you familiar with that interview, Gary?
6: I've heard I've heard several interviews uh, with Morrison and, you know, so I've probably heard it. But, you know, Morrison was brilliant. I mean, with an IQ of 149, the books he read in elementary school and high school were so advanced that one of his teachers had to go to the Library of Congress to even see if they existed. So, I mean, he was very well ahead of everything. And, uh, you know, his his studies made him what he was. He was a great poet. Uh, If you listen to Horse Latitudes, it's on the second Doors album, I believe. He wrote it when he was in high school. So, you know, he was was filled with promise.
4: All right, David, thank you for the call. Uh, There was, shortly after he died, reports from a Bank of America employee in San Francisco who claimed to be handling an account of someone who looked like Jim Morrison, who went by the name of Jim Morrison. Whatever happened to that uh, Bank of uh, America employee? What did you make of that story?
6: Well, uh, after he died, there were strange things that were going around. First of all, he died on uh, July 3rd, and uh, when it became known that that was the date of his death on his death certificate, a number of people said that they saw a man who looked very similar to Jim Morrison boarding a plane leaving Paris headed back to the United States. So, you know, that's the first thing. And then the Bank of America employee who was handling an account uh for Morrison or a man who looked like him. And and then the, the the story of Mr. Mojo Rising, you know, where he claims that you take Mr Mojo Rising, of course it's Jim Morrison. It's all spelled out and he said if you ever get a call from Mr Mojo Rising, it's me And the idea that he could see himself dropping out of the music business and putting on a three-piece suit, cutting his hair, and getting into business. I mean, all this stuff sort of came out. But, you know, it follows the pattern of urban legends. You know, like when Elvis died, how many people saw Elvis three days after his death or saw him in a beach house with sunglasses sitting in the back watching it or, you know, figuring out that... uh, 2001: uh, Space Odyssey was supposed to be the the year that Elvis returned. He's a little late now, but anyway, <laughs> there all this stuff came out, and it follows the pattern. When Michael Jackson died, uh, there were photographs showing someone who looked like Michael Jackson three or four days after he died. So, it goes into the whole realm of what creates a great urban legend, and that is that you know these people are with us. Uh, when David was listening to the interview, I mean Jim Morrison's talking to him. When we turn on. XM and turn on your show, Richard. We hear all this great bumper music of The Doors Tonight. So he's actually immortal. They're living forever. And when we talk about artists who die at 27, it's like those whom the gods love die young. And it goes all through history. You talk about Alexander the Great, whatever. So. What are they remembered and their music lives forever, and it keeps that nostalgia, that feeling with us that we still share the, the human expression of it. Then it's going to go on forever, and I think that that has something to do with just the role of urban legend itself. Is how these people have to be bigger than death; that they just can't simply die. So, uh, I granted,
4: granted, but if there was one individual who, who could have pulled it off, uh, I think even oh, yeah. Ray Manzarek admitted it would have been Jim Morrison.
6: Oh, I would agree with that. And I was kind of shocked because uh, I got Ray and Robbie Krieger on Coast to Coast one night, and uh, we spent the whole three and a half hours talking about Morrison. And uh, even though in the VH1 interview, when uh, Ray said that he would be at Paris on July said and opened the box on 2001, that now on the radio he said, Oh, no, Jim's dead. He's, you know, and had no question about it. So, you know, maybe things have changed since 2000 And uh, to do that. But, if any urban legend could have been true, you know, Paul is dead, all the others, Jim Morrison, and even Alan Graham talks about it, he was the guy who could have pulled it off if it had happened. And I, and I know this is a conspiracy show, So and I may have already missed this question, but, you know, you may want to talk about, and we should talk about probably, why Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and Janis Joplin died so close to each other.
4: All right. Well, why don't we do that uh, on the other side when we come back, Gary?
6: So we'll break on through to the other side.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, you know those lyrics: "We want the world, and we want it now." Want Maybe it now. he was, he was, so dangerous, so rebellious, so, so much of an anarchist that perhaps he was a bigger threat to the, the CIA and the the, the, the French uh, CIA than. Uh, we can even ever imagine. Perhaps the question, again, should be who killed Jim Morrison. We'll discuss that as well. Rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson with me here on The Conspiracy Show. Yeah,
3: come on. I love my girl. She looking good. Come on.
1: Theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrick on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1 866 740 4740. Our Gary Patterson
4: is with us. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. Also the author of The Walrus was Paul. Self-styled Fox Moulder of uh, rock and roll. And uh, Gary, you uh, alluded to sort of a, a conspiracy surrounding the death of Jim Morrison and uh, sort of the proximity of Morrison's death with that of uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. What did you mean by that?
6: Well, I think it goes back a little further. You know, in the late 1950s, the United States government was very interested in un-American activities. And uh, we're talking about, basically, before Jimmy Carter made the CIA a kinder, gentler organization. And this was when the Bay of Pigs invasion was being uh, thought about, the idea of of communist uh, hiding in American government. And the question was, was rock and roll subversive? Now the Russians would tell you, obviously it was. But let's take a look at this, and this is what's odd. When Elvis Presley came out, everything changed, even though Little Richard was the architect of rock and roll. But let's take a look at 1959. In 1959, Elvis Presley was in the Army. He was no longer a threat. And when he came out of the Army, what type of music did he do? He was doing, like, young Dean Martin songs in Blue Hawaii and Girls, Girls, Girls. It was not jailhouse rock, and he wasn't Elvis the Pelvis. Not till 1968 when he returned. And Morrison loved it, when, by the way, when uh, Elvis came back and he was wearing black leather. He thought that was cool. But also in 1959, you had the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. And that was the very rawness of rock and roll, that Buddy Holly could have really done a lot with his production. So that ended. And then you have an American music industry that was taken over by Fabian, Frankie Avalon, Tommy Sands, you know, not very... You know, they did not take what was considered to be black music and make it white, which was the one thing that, you know, if you remember the United States, Richard, black music was not played on white radio stations.
4: Correct, right.
6: In that time period, not not in the 1950s, all right. Uh, in the same year, uh, little Richard plane almost went down when he was going to Australia, and he falls on his knees in a plane, and he says, God, if you let me live, I'll be a minister. So he gives up rock and roll, become a minister. And then Jerry Lee Lewis marries his 13-year-old cousin, Mara, and ends his career effectively. So in 1959, it wasn't the day the music died. It was the year the music died. And also Alan Freed, the man who gave rock and roll its name, was uh, destroyed by the payola scandals. So the whole music environment changed. Now, that might seem odd. You know. Are you, are you, you know,
4: suggesting that, the, that there was a deliberate plan to remove some of the more subversive elements out of American pop culture? It was by design?
5: I
6: don't know. I mean, I'm saying it just looks, you know, I mean, it's a great coincidence, okay? And uh, when you look at that, and then how the music changed, and and what happened when the Beatles came over in 1964 and did the Ed Sullivan show that, you know, I remember watching that myself. uh, The Beatles took over, the British invasion came in, you had the Rolling Stones, and then music became, you know, more rebellious. And Jim Morrison grew up. He loved the Stones. He loved the Beatles. And uh, when he came in, you know, the counterculture broke. And, you know, you remember the counterculture. This was anarchist Jim, Mm. you know, doing songs like Five to One. And I've heard that Five to One was supposed to represent, you know, five times as many youths as there are people who are older. So we're going to win, we're taking over. And also there was a movie called Wild in the Streets. I don't know if you remember watching that movie where the uh, American age to vote was 14.
4: I did't see that.: uh, movie. It was
6: youth taking over, and they say that you know the character in the movie was probably based on Morrison, hmm. his ideas. So the FBI was very interested in Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin and Jim Morrison, and there were, you know, tons, tons of uh, information in their files. Now, Jimi Hendrix, what would make him interesting to the FBI? Well, first of all, he had formed a relationship with the Black Panthers, okay? and that was a subversive group so according to the fbi and the cia so you know he was a person of interest janice joplin you know uh... i can't think of anything that janice joplin represented i mean she was a great singer she was uh, greatly troubled you know she may have been some figure of uh... feminism that was taking in who knows and you know she doesn't fit in with the other two but the most interested person the fbi and the cia was interested in was jim morrison and the answer was that Jim Morrison was one of the few people who could get on a stage, say a few words, and have a complete riot because he could control a crowd. Now, when Hendrix died, Janice Joplin said, Well, I sure am glad I didn't die today. He'd get all the press. Yeah. Well, she died two weeks later.
4: Right, right.
6: All right. And I've got to tell you, Richard, I've never believed that Jimi Hendrix died. Of asphyxiation on his sleeping pills, and that you know he died choking on his own vomit. I never believed that. And what has amazed me in the last few months is doing some more research on this. Did you know that after Hendrix's death, no one had interviewed the ambulance drivers or the doctor at the hospital who saw Hendrix's body? Hmm. Now, what we have about Jimi Hendrix's death. Is Monica Daineman's account. And Monica Daineman was Hendrix's girlfriend. He was living with her at the time he died. Uh, She convinced Hendrix's father, Al, that uh, Hendrix was planning to marry her, and she was his fiancee. But when she found Hendrix and he wasn't breathing, she she doesn't call an ambulance. She goes outside her flat and she calls Eric Burden. Of the animals? Yeah. And, And precious minutes go by. So Eric Burden tells her to call the ambulance. She goes back, and she's probably scared because there may have been drugs in the flat. All right, so when the ambulance comes, she says that they put him up in an upright position, and the ambulance driver swore to her that he was going to be all right, that he was alive. And they took him to the hospital, so she goes, and she waits, and she waits, and uh, she doesn't see a doctor. She finally finds one who had uh, attended the body, only to find that Jimmy had been pronounced O.P.D., officially pronounced dead, and he was lying in the back with a sheet over him. Now, this is what gets me. The doctor said in a medical report that the body was oozing red wine from his mouth. He didn't drink. Well, here's the thing. When they did the blood alcohol level, it was very low. Hmm. Okay? So that would mean that he had died before the alcohol reached his blood level. There's a new book that came out. It's called Rhodey in which one of Mike Jeffrey, Mike Jeffrey was uh, Jimi Hendrix's manager at the time of his death, said that three men held Hendrix down and poured bottles of wine down his throat to actually drown him.
4: My word.
6: And the reason this happened, according to the new theory, is that Jeffrey had borrowed a great deal of money from organized crime to build Electric Ladyland Studios, and Hendrix was leaving him. Now, if Hendrix left Jeffrey, Jeffrey would have nothing. But the most valuable thing you can have is a dead rock star. Jimi Hendrix once said, you know, it's funny about how people love the dead. He said, when you're dead, you're made for life. Well, you're not made for life, but your manager is. Right, right. So when Hendrix died, or if he was murdered, Mike Jeffrey inherited all the royalties from the company as his manager. He made a million dollars off the insurance. And he was very upset when Eric Burden went on television in Great Britain saying that he was convinced Jimmy had committed suicide. Do you know why Jeffrey was angry?
4: He wouldn't collect the insurance.
6: That's right. Now, what happens? All right, we know that the night before Hendricks died, he went to see his former girlfriend, Devon Wilson, who's a very famous, groupie, beautiful girl, who uh, he wrote Dolly Dagger for. And then he comes back with Monica Daneman, uh, eats a tuna fish sandwich, drinks a glass of wine, goes to sleep, asphyxiates. Well... Right after his funeral, Devon Wilson takes a swan dog off the Hotel Chelsea, commits suicide. Hmm. When Monica Daneman, who would written the book and gave the reports of it, she was sued by Kathy Etchingham. And Kathy was uh, Hendrix's, another one of Hendrix's girlfriends who he wrote The Wind Cries Mary for. And she takes a hose, and a vacuum cleaner hose, puts it to her muffler in a Mercedes, runs it through a window, asphyxiates herself, dies of carbon monoxide poisoning.
4: The death list begins
6: the death list begins. And Mike Jeffrey, the man who knew the answers, was returning from, I think he was returning from Spain by flight to answer some questions about his uh, accounting issues, and the plane blows up in air, and he's killed. So, we may never know what happened to Jimi Hendrix, but I think there's a lot of good questions now. You know, the drowning part, whatever. But, you know, when Jim Morrison, who was probably one of the major, more political leaders of the counterculture, you know, he would be a major target. You know, And the thing is with his father, his father had offered to you know, try to send agents out to have him arrested because he was an embarrassment to the family. They did not get along. And you know, if the CIA had followed him and they realized that he wasn't going to go to prison in Florida, then uh, with help from maybe French security, or their secret service then you know it could be believable that he could have been killed. Now another thing that just came out a few years ago was that Jim Morrison there's always been a rumor that Jim Morrison had died in a nightclub and this nightclub was called the Rock and Roll Circus in Paris. Right. And the story goes he came in, he purchased some drugs from two fellows. He went back into the bathroom, sat in one of the stalls, took the drugs, and then died, fell on his face. They called a, uh, a paramedic to come in to attend to him. The paramedic said, "This man is dead." The two men who sold him the drug said, "No, no, no, no. He's not dead. We're going to take care of him. He's all right." So they pick him up, and they carry him, you know, shoulder over each neck, holding on to him. They carry him back to his apartment, and when they when they get him there, they set him in the bathtub. Now, if that story true. Everything Pamela Corson said is not true, which would mean that Pamela Corson was not there that night when they put him in the bathtub. Now, let me show you what's interesting about the bathtub theory. And Alan Graham is the person who told me this. When they found Morrison's body, his back was up against the water pops.
4: Nobody sits in a tub like that.
6: Exactly. Which meant he had been placed there. And if that was the case, he may have died at the rock and roll circus, and the two men take him back, put him in the bathtub. Those were the two men who sold him the drugs. If you know they're found out, they're going to go to prison. Pamela Corson comes in, and of course, you know they were notoriously unfaithful to each other. And she comes in, she finds the body. She has to have a good story, you know, to prove that she was there. And uh, then what they have to do is is cover up the whole thing so there's no autopsy. So. There's a lot of strange things that are happening, and, and there's a lot of investigation still going on into what happened to Jim Morrison that night on July 3rd. So that's another interesting angle to the story.
4: And the speculation probably will never end. Well, we'll that's uh, why
6: we call them urban legends.
4: Exactly. Urban legends. Enough to fill a volume of on its, uh, on its very own. Gary Patterson stays with us <laughs> as we continue to discuss the life and death of Jim Morrison of
0: The Doors. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
3: Before you slip into unconscious, I'd like to have not enough.
1: being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Gary
4: Patterson stays with us, rock and roll investigator. The walrus was Paul Hellhounds on our trail and... Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. Ourgarypatterson dot com, the website. What about the uh, the book that was uh, written supposedly by Jim Morrison himself back in the in the mid seventies, about nineteen seventy five? I think it was called Bank of America of Louisiana. Uh, what was the what was behind that?
6: Well, you know, it's kind of like the Elvis tapes, you know.
4: <laughs> right. Right.
6: You know, a few years after Elvis died, you know, here comes a, a book with a cassette tape attached to it of uh, Elvis Presley talking to the author, mentioning things many years after he had died. And then they found out later on that it was uh, an Elvis impersonator who had been hired to do the tape for an Elvis fan club. But you know, when you have a when you have an appetite for something, and you and you have a great story going, and of course, after Morrison died, I mean, it, it came out pretty soon that maybe Morrison had faked his death, so it wasn't that long. It just seemed like something that goes along with the whole story whole story with it. I mean, I'm not seeing it around anymore, but there's so many things that come out, you know, right after that. So that Morrison had written it himself. I mean, if Morrison was going to write something, I'm sure it would be much more poetic, you know, like the Lords and New Creatures and, and all of that, you know, which just happens to be with Simon & Schuster, too. But uh, his books of poetry, I mean, Morrison thought more of himself as a poet, you know. And uh, so we'll see with that. I noticed that uh, I remember Pat- uh, Patricia Kennealy, who uh, had married Morrison, as the legend says, in a Wiccan ceremony, claims that she has some lost poetry of uh, Jim Morrison that he had written for her. And, of course, the legal issues of getting all this stuff out, I mean, who knows, you know? Uh, whoever wrote the book, maybe he'll show up and if it's Mr. Mojo Rising, wow it's going to create a whole new chapter <laughs> well then of
4: course there is I, I guess the most recent uh, Jim is Alive uh, a legend uh, is in Oregon where apparently according to Gerald Pitts who owns a, a rodeo uh, uh, out uh, out in, in Oregon, claims that this fellow showed up in about 1996 uh I guess he lives next door to Gerald Pitts and is performing in the uh, the rodeo. I think he goes by the name of Bill Lawyer, and uh, this uh, Gerald Pitts. I've talked to him on the show. He seems like a pretty sincere guy. I mean, he, he he doesn't claim to know much about rock and roll. I don't think he had even heard of the Doors, uh, but um, this Bill Lawyer claims he is Jim Morrison. Now, I've seen I've seen pictures, I've seen video of uh, this. A uh, bill lawyer uh, fellow, and you, you know when they do the the they the superimpose the image of one person over right. the other. I've I've seen that done, and and uh, I don't know if you've seen the video as well, but it I mean it does look like an older Jim Morrison to be sure. All the sort of the features line up and so forth. What do you make of that story?
6: Well, you know it's an interesting story because uh, Gerald had come on Coast to Coast one night, and they were trying to get on t- get in touch with me so I could be on with him and. Uh, some reason we didn't mesh up that night but I went on the next night and I said yeah you know I'd love to hear the story so I got Gerald's phone number and called him and, and I agree with you I think he's a a person who's very sincere I mean I really think that Gerald Pitts thinks that Jim Morrison's living up in Oregon or I, I thought so at the time so I talked to him and I thought well you know what we need to do and of course he, he kind of wanted my help you know so we could do some radio and but I think what he wanted me to do was come out and say, yes, Jim Orson is living in Oregon. There's no doubt about it, which I'm not going to do, you know. Uh, he actually has a video of Ray saying, Oh, well, Jim's alive. He's living in Oregon. Haven't you heard? So, you know, he takes that, puts it there on, on the site, which is a little sarcasm more than it is the truth. But, you know, actually I had talked to him about flying to Oregon, and I was going to bring uh, one of the executive producers to coast to coast with me. We were going to fly up. And uh, I was going to say we want to interview this guy, and uh, we want to do a DNA test. So what I had to do was get in touch with Alan Graham. Well, when I got in touch with Alan, who was formerly uh, Jim Morrison's brother-in-law, he, he was married to uh, Anna, who was Jim's sister, and they since divorced. But uh, you know, Alan had been hearing this for a great, great long time, and uh, you know he was interested in going up and and seeing it. And uh, so when I talked to Gerald, Gerald yeah, yeah, we'll do it. You know, fly them up, we'll have cameras, and yeah, we'll do the DNA, we'll make that. He said, but I want to make sure I get to choose the lab. I said, well, you know, as long as it's a reputable lab and we know that, you know, the, the chain of evidence, nothing's going to be tampered with, you know. So I was really pushing it. But then I noticed that nothing ever happened, that there was no date to fly up, or yeah, we can do this. And then the last time I talked to Gerald, and a lot of times we try to call him now, you get a, a call on his phone. When you call his phone, it says something about this person that's not set up his voicemail. Ah. And so it, it's kind of hard to get in touch with him. Maybe, maybe he's flooded with calls. But I told him, I said, okay, if we're going to come up, I said, I've got to have you know, your assurance that this is going to take place. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do when you come up. He said, uh, I'll take you up to his house, and Jim and Marcia's house, and I'm sure they'll come out and talk to you. He said, "But the only thing I can promise you is a ham sandwich." (laughs) And I was thinking, that's a pretty expensive ham sandwich from Tennessee to Oregon, you know. So then I started getting the feeling that, you know, by more talking with Gerald, I realized that the sales of the tapes that he has on his website is to finance a movie about Gerald's life, and that Jim is going to play one of the roles. In the film, and that's what he wanted to do, and that's why the thing was was put out there. I've since heard that Jim and Marsha have put out a videotape saying that uh, Gerald had made the whole thing up, and none of it's true. But that Jim lawyer uh, may have been possessed by the spirit of Jim Morrison, or it may have come into his body. You know, I don't know if it was uh, Don's Highway or whatever. And uh, but you know, just the idea. So. I also received a real interesting email from South America from a journalist down there warning me not to go.
4: <laughs> ah, in other words, yeah, he'd already been down that road.
6: Yeah, and she she had been there, she'd written a book, and she said that there were gun charges and prison sentences, and she feared for my safety. Hmm. So when you put all that together, you're saying, you know, what exactly is going up there? But, you know, a ham sandwich just wasn't that enticing.
4: No, I guess not. Uh, that's a long way and, to go for a uh, ham sandwich, but... <laughs> Well, good for you for at least also, be, you know willing to, to, to go that uh, – I mean, for you – in order for you, have, for you to have made the decision that you were willing to go, I mean, you must have thought there was at least some credible aspect to the story, no?
6: Well, I actually thought it was an interesting story. Mm-hmm. I didn't – I never really thought it was credible. And the reason I didn't think it was credible is if I was Jim Morrison and I'd been living in Oregon raising horses, why would I go to Gerald Pitts and make him my manager? Exactly. A guy who doesn't even know who the doors were. Right. Uh, I mean, when you call up uh, all the major networks and say, I've got an announcement to make, I am Jim Morrison. I want to see my sister. I want to see my mother, Clara. I want to see my father. You know, let's come down. Let's all get together, give a group hug. You know, I'm back. Oh, by the way, I want my millions of dollars from my royalties that I've not received since 1971. You know, it's gone to my family. I want to make sure that I get my money. Uh, you know, it just didn't make sense. I mean, when you logically look at it, you know, there were, there were a lot of holes in the story. And when I read the affidavits, it said that, uh, you know, that Gerald had sent a letter to the FBI saying, uh, did, uh prove that this is not Jim Morrison. Well, I don't know about you, but if the FBI gets a letter like that, I'm sure they're going to rush right out to do it. And then to the Morrison family, he sent a letter saying, uh, you know, rejoice, uh, your son, uh, brother is alive. Uh, you know, in three weeks, if you don't disprove it, then you know I'm going to say that he this is the real Jim Morrison. And a lot of times you have to be quiet. I know that that Robbie and and Ray you know, they don't want to talk about it. But you know, I was thinking, you know, it might go like the uh, new Doors documentary. Uh, when you're strange, you know, maybe it is people are strange. You know, you want to go up and and see what happened. But I wanted to bring Alan Graham and see if I could get Alan to bring uh, Jim's younger brother uh, Andy with us. And uh, you know, just have a one of those great moments on television, reality television. But I got to tell you, Richard, uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, there are many people across the country who claim to be the children of Jim Morrison.
4: Yes, uh, yes, I've been following that, and some of them look an awful lot like him, too.
6: Yeah, and uh, and that's like, entirely like possible. And, yeah, I mean, and and there's some stories. I mean, I follow this too because I talk to. I mean, I like you, Richard. I get lots of interesting emails, and I met this one fella. And uh, he said, look, he said, I've done very well for myself. You know, I've made a great deal of money. He said, but I've got to know, am I Jim Morrison's son? He said, uh, I was playing in a, in a Doors tribute band in Memphis, and uh, Anna and Andy, Jim's sister and brother, came up to me, and they said, could you be our nephew? And he said, that made me think. And he said, my mother, if you research her, said uh, she was always linked with Jim Morrison. He said, when I was born, I always went to the finest private schools, Uh, my mom worked in a convenience store, Mm. but we drove Porsches and Corvettes, and we had this beautiful house. And I had a trust fund of money coming in, but the trust fund said that I could never, ever acknowledge where the money came from. So he said that at one time he lived in New Orleans, and he said that he found a person on his property with a camera. He went out with a gun. And the person said, hey, sorry, I just wanted to know if I live next to the Lizard Prince.
4: <laughs>
3: and now the
6: guy's moved from uh, Louisiana. But, I mean, you hear these stories, and it's kind of interesting. Maybe we could do a TV thing, Richard. We'll call it Morrison Family Reunion. <laughs>
4: that would be terrific. That would be terrific. And television. we'll get them all
6: together, and uh, we'll hear their stories. And see what we can do. But, I mean, all this is fascinating because, uh, I mean, you hear more about Morrison's offspring than you do any other rock star.
4: Well, speaking of offspring, and uh, I know we're, we're talking about Jim Morrison, but while I have you on the line, I have, um, I've, I've talked a number of times on the radio with uh, Eliza Presley. This is a woman mm-hmm. who uh, found out that she was adopted and found out that she grew up across the street from uh, from Graceland and originally thought that uh, perhaps she was... She went looking for her biological uh, parents. She thought maybe she was the daughter of Elvis, and then through some DNA testing, uh, she came to realize that she was supposedly the daughter of Vernon Presley, making her Elvis's half-sister. Now, she got together with uh, the... Uh, or contacted... A, uh, a reporter from uh, Cleveland's uh, Channel 8, which is, I think is the Fox affiliate up there. Uh, now, th- now, this particular reporter provided her, supposedly, with some DNA evidence uh, to prove this, and she's taken it to court. But this same DNA evidence, supposedly, was taken from a gentleman who goes by the name of Jesse Guerin Presley. And the DNA evidence supposedly proves that Jesse is Elvis. Have you been following this particular thread in the Elvis saga?
6: When it first broke, I followed it. But, you know, the question is, if it came from Jesse, how do we know it came from Elvis? Because I mean, if I call myself Jesse, and you take my DNA, and I have an illegitimate daughter, then it would prove it would be mine under any name. The question is, if it's supposed to be from Elvis, where did they get the DNA from Elvis Presley well apparently he comes out
4: well what they did apparently was they in her in her search to find out her lineage she she got the DNA uh samples from cousins on both sides and it okay. and this Jesse Guerin's DNA matches up with not only Vernon's side uh but also the um the other side, and since he was the only the only child, supposedly uh there's only one person that could match both sides
6: well it's going to be an interesting story i, mm-hmm. I look forward to to getting into it because I know it's going to happen in Tennessee and Memphis yes uh that's where the case is, but I also know that the Presley family and the estate what they've done is somehow they've blocked out if any heir ever appears that they're not entitled to anything so Maybe what she wants to do is just the credibility of it. That's what so, she I says. Mean, she says she's not after the
4: any money anymore. She just wants to be officially recognized as Vernon's daughter, because uh, and uh, and also as Elvis's half sister. But uh, it's interesting. What'll happen if this comes out in court? I mean, there's DNA evidence. Would the would the media be forced to recognize that this Jesse Guerin, in fact, is Elvis Presley? It'll be. Uh, It'll be interesting. I, I that's have to off- be
6: an interesting story. I mean, if Jesse Guerin is actually Elvis, then, uh, you know, that's going to prove all those people who say Elvis is alive, you know. And, uh, see, we told you so ever since 1977. There you go. But, you know, I mean, gosh, I have followed so many of these great stories, Richard. I mean, when I was doing the Elvis is Alive thing, I, was, uh, I asked Carl Perkins, and I was in Nashville with him. And I got to know him pretty well, and he told me some great stories about the Beatles, everything else, ghostly, spooky stories, which I love. And then I was talking to him about Elvis, and I said, look, I know you were at Elvis' funeral. I said, was that really him in the coffin, or was it a dummy? And he looked at me and said, Gary, Elvis is gone. Hmm. And when I heard him say that, it sort of sort of made me believe, you know? and. Everything that comes out, I mean, there's so many things that come out with it. I mean, this is going to be an interesting story. And you know, Richard, just what I live for. I love this stuff. Oh, I mean, exactly. This is going to be another great legend. What, another are you,
4: myth. what are you working on right now? And, and, uh, are you writing another book? What's going on?
6: Well, right now I'm, I'm putting up some other stories. And uh, I thought I'd do it a lot faster, but this summer I've, I've had so much to do. Uh, usually I like to sit around and, and do my writing in the summer. But uh, I've got a couple chapters finished, and... And I'm working on my fourth one, and uh, I've got some great stories, which we're going to have fun with, my friend. Oh, I'm mean, looking forward some to it. that are, are incredible. And uh, so I'm doing that, and hopefully uh, when I get it written, my agent's going to be happy, because uh, I've been uh, playing the game in Hollywood, which you know about, and I think that uh, I'm going to write a book called The Longest No.
4: <laughs> mm, yeah, television, you know yes, it takes forever, doesn't it? hurry
6: up and wait. That's always <laughs> another good one.
4: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you and I could swap some more stories there. Oh,
6: we got some stories, but uh, yeah, I'm working on that now, and uh, I'm going to have an internet radio show.
4: Yes, I wanted probably. to ask you about
6: that. Yeah. And, uh, Tell me more about that. I want you to come on with me. Oh, I'd yeah, love to Yeah, it's going to be, gonna be uh, if your listeners would like to, they can go to www.popodysseyradio.com, an odyssey-like by Homer, O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y, and they can sign up. And we're going to have some great shows and uh, bring on some people that uh, they would love to hear. And we're going to take a lot of the great myths and legends and add more to it. A lot of it may have some more paranormal thrown into it because the guy I do the show with, Stephen Wren, he uh, used to have a show on the Internet called Haunted Voices, so we're going to combine all this together and got a great idea for another TV show, a series that, you know, we'll talk about, too. Terrific. But, you know, it's going to be fun, and it gives me a chance to uh, get on and, and uh, you know, do what we're doing now.
4: Oh, tell well, some great stories. I wish you all the luck with it. You, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think it'd be a smash success because uh, you've got so many great stories, and you know, you've gotten to know so many of the the great uh the great rock and roll uh, stars that are still with us. Now, you mentioned Carl Perkins. Can I get you to tell me that, that uh, speaking of sort of the paranormal aspect of all of this, that uh, the, Car- the Carl Perkins story, was, it, was there a connection with Paul McCartney?
6: Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you that one.
4: Um, Why don't we just take a quick time out when we come back sure. and I'll get you to tell that story. R. Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigators with us. R.
1: GaryPatterson.com, the website. Back with more. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
3: Take the highway to the end of the
0: line. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740.
3: Untrue, you know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you, Girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come over there, like my father. Come over there, like my father. Try to set the night
1: on fire. Curiosity, or did the devil take make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at
4: 1-866-740-4740. And before we get to the uh, the Carl Perkins, Paul McCartney story, which is a little spooky actually, Uh, i got an off-air question going back to our discussion on uh, Jim Morrison. And uh, the listener describes an album called The Phantom. And they don't recall the band, uh, but claims the lead singer sounded uncannily like Jim. And uh, The Phantom uh, album was released after Jim's death. Are you familiar with that uh, album, Gary?
6: I don't know if I remember it as The Phantom, but I do. This may be the answer. Uh, There was a singer who did an album. And it sounded exactly like Jim Morrison. So it gave a lot of credence to the idea that Morrison was alive and that he did this album. But the singer turned out to be Iggy Pop.
4: Iggy Pop. And hmm.
6: From the Stooges. And uh, you know, and uh, I always thought, wow, that's an interesting story as well. And by listening to the bumper music on Light My Fire, one thing I remember about it is that was the very first song that Robbie Krieger ever wrote, and it went number one. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Wow! Wow! What Very is the song you ever write? And it hits number one on the charts. There you wow. go. It's great.
4: What What is the status of? Uh, I know that um, Manzarek and and uh, a Krieger have toured. At first, they were the Doors mm-hmm. of the 21st century, and Dinsmore sort of nixed that, saying, "I don't want the Doors mm-hmm. mentioned at all." They took them to court, and then they changed their name right. to, uh, I think, Riders on the Storm. Uh, that's it. There was a, there was even talk of. Uh, uh, enlisting the late Jim Carroll uh, before he passed away, obviously, to, to write uh, lyrics for a new Doors album. Are they are they, are they they still touring? Uh, are they winding things down? I mean, Ray's got to be close to 70.
6: Yeah. Um, well, I talked to Robbie, let's see, I guess it was about a year ago, and uh, maybe two, I guess. It's been a while. But, you know, they couldn't talk about the lawsuit on the name because, or using the name Doors, but uh, they did lose that suit in court. And I think the Morrison family also sided with Densmore, So that's when they became writers on the storm. And, uh, you know, they do their tours. And uh, I think they did a South American tour, and they they tour throughout the country. And and you've got two of the surviving doors out of the three that are left, and uh, they seem to have a good time. Uh, I know they would like to have some material. Uh, Alan Graham sort of hints that there's some other unpublished Morrison lyrics. And that you know that that might be one of the angles in which Robbie and Ray would like to get their hands on it, but I got to tell you, I mean, just to finish up on the doors before we do Carl Perkins, I mean the doors were like nothing else in nineteen sixty seven I mean the British invasion had knocked us a- for a loop because uh you know we weren't prepared for it musically, but in San Francisco, well, not San Francisco in Los Angeles, it made it stand because. American music in in uh, Los Angeles. You had the Birds. You had American uh, the Buffalo Springfield, and then you had the Doors. And the Doors were theatrical. They had a poet as a lead singer. I mean, he looked like Lord Byron or or Hamlet from a Shakespearean play, dressed in black and leather. And and you know they were such a phenomena that you know it actually helped create American music again. But I mean that was the thing on the Doors, and uh, that's what I love about it. But let me tell you the Carl Perkins story. Yes. Uh, You know, I think the only show I've ever told this on is your show, I think, so (laughs) it's good. Uh, Of course, the Beatles loved Carl Perkins. Uh, I think they did three songs, Matchbox, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, and Honey Don't. They even flew he and his family to uh, Abbey Road Studios to meet him, and uh, so there was a big bond for him there. Well... After John was killed, McCartney did the Tug of War album, and he flew Carl to perform on it and took him into the studio. They were on an island in the studio, and Carl had uh, played on the album, and uh, he sort of got inspired to write a song, and he called the song My Old Friend was the name of the song, My Old Friend, and then there was a line where he said, My Old Friend, think about me every now and then. So when the session was over, he goes up to Paul and he says, Paul, will not you listen to a song? Give me, Give me your true feeling about it. Tell me what you think. And he played the song, and he said, every time I sing the chorus, it looked like Paul had been hit in the face. His face grew pale. And he said, oh, she hates it. And he said, well, Paul, I I just wanted you to hear And he said, no, no, Carl, it's great. He said, wait a minute, I have to go get Linda. So he goes, he gets his wife Linda, they come back down, they sit on the floor, he says, play it again. And when Carl would play the song, and he did, my old friend, think about me every now and then, Paul would turn and look at Linda, Linda would look at Paul, and he noticed that there were tears streaming out of Paul's eyes. By the time he did the third chorus, Paul had to get up, he left, he went outside by the pool. And then Carl stops playing, he goes over to Linda and he says, Linda, I'm so sorry, I don't know why I've upset him, but I want to apologize. And Linda says, Carl, how did you know? And he says, what do you mean? How did I know? I mean, I was just, this just came to me. She said, No, Carl, how did you know? She said, The last time we were with John before he was murdered, when John was going back into the Dakota, he stopped and he turned to Paul and said, Hey, old friend, think about me every now and then.
4: Wow. I I get chills every time you tell me that story. That's amazing. And he
6: says that he was convinced that maybe John was trying to give him a message through that song to Paul that it was all right. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, I mean, that story gives me chills. But, you know, Carl sat there and told the story, and, uh, you know, it's on his last CD, which is called Go, Cat, Go. And uh, I remember Carl signed a book for me. He had had my copy of The Walrus's Paul, and he asked me to sign it for him, you know, Carl Perkins. I go, yeah, I'll be glad to sign it. I said, sign yours for me, and he wrote... To Gary, from your friend Carl Perkins, and he wrote, Go Cat Go.
4: Wow, that's and quite what a keepsake. a
6: great gentleman he is and was, I'm sorry. Indeed. A great indeed. story.
4: And uh, as uh, are you, uh, Gary, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out on a July 4th uh, to spend some time with us. And uh, as always, uh, your stories and information are, are just
0: amazing.
4: And uh, I enjoy having you on each and every time, and I look forward to doing uh, more. Of the same, and uh, the best of luck with the, uh, the Internet Radio Show. I'm, uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be pleased to join you on the program anytime you want.
6: Oh, that's wonderful, Richard, because I look forward to doing your shows, and I value our friendship.
4: Terrific. my right, friend. Till next time, our Gary Patterson. Take a walk on the dark side. Hey, our good old friend Nelson Thal is standing by. We'll speak with uh, our media scientist on the other side.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Coming up on the program
4: next week, Dr. Hugh Ross. And uh, we'll discuss pre-flood civilizations. That's next Sunday. That would be the 11th of July. Dr. Hugh Ross, pre-flood civilizations. And uh, the week after that, which would be the uh, 18th, uh, we're going to talk with a a researcher about the Bohemian Grove. All right, let's uh, check in with our good friend, media scientist, Nelson Thal. Hey, Nelson, how are you? Hey, Richard,
2: great. Uh, Great to be on and a great show.
4: Thank you, my friend.
2: Um, I just wanted to throw out one thing for, I wanted to get your feedback on when it comes to the G20 and filling in that gap as to what was the real, what was really going on. About a year ago, we discovered that the Queen's ability to remain sovereign in England evaporated with the Maastricht Treaty. So she's no longer sovereign in England, and that means she um, can be sued in England, but she can't be sued here And a lot of groups have been wondering whether or not perhaps she decided to make an unofficial move from England, keep Buckhouse as her official residence, but maybe actually move to Canada or the United States. She's the largest single landholder in North America. Do you think that that's what was going on here? The billion and a half was uh, for for her move?
4: How would she take up residence here without everyone actually knowing or finding out?
2: very easily, you know. I mean, she's got a farm in Kentucky that covers mountain ranges. She could easily fly in, and she can, just like Bush lives in 1,500 square miles in Paraguay, she could easily live in Kentucky or somewhere in Canada unofficially, and she can't be sued here.
4: Interesting. well, so so then the G, the, 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 the billion uh, and change that was spent at the G20, how does that figure into her moving here?
2: Well, I figure that about 300,000, we're told, went to the actual security, and the rest went to the actual cost of moving her and the family over here to, and all her artifacts, etc.
4: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, wow. so that's
2: it's sort of in the pipeline. Uh, different res- researchers are looking into that, because it's very fishy, and was the G20 just a coming-out party? But if you look at all the, all the publicity, what did she say? The headline in the papers was, she's glad to be home. Well, since when is this her home? <laughs> <I never laughs>
4: noticed
2: at all, the, the announcers said she said she's glad to be home. The front-page headline in the Star and the Globe said she's glad to be home. Well, since when is Canada her home?
4: Nelson, you're always finding the real news behind the headlines, and that's why we love you. What's on, uh, what's on uh, Shock Talk this Thursday?
2: Uh, you know what, Richard? We're, I'm on my spy agency tour and uh, c- came back from it, and I think we're going to talk about the, the Interpol and, its, uh, and the, the way it controls the other intelligence agencies, CIA, DIA, ONI, etc.
4: Interesting. All right. Uh, that's Shock Talk with Bloom and Steele uh, Thursday nights, and uh, you can check them check out the shows if you miss uh, cloakanddagger.com terrific alright Nelson we'll talk soon my friend thanks Richard alright thanks to uh, you Dan Ellison for technical production of course uh, thanks to Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief and our Gary Patterson our rock and roll investigator in the meantime don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known what you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the, cou- uh, from the rooftops, Move over, Aphrodite. I am coming home. Good night.
1: Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's Mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing. And she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
0: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.